This is Bernard Holly, and you're listening to the Doctor Who podcast. This week on the Doctor Who podcast, we take a look at some very special, special releases from Big Finish. Yes, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. And as you can tell from the intro, I'm joined this week by Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Hello, James. It's another one of those extremely rare sessions where you and I just get to talk big finish. I think out of all of the camper van occupants, you and I are probably the most obsessive uh, about big finish. And between us, I think we cover pretty much all of their ranges, don't we? I don't know that I have every single range, but I I counted it up recently and I think there's at least 20 of their ranges that I have anywhere from a passing familiarity to an in-depth familiarity with. And if there were more time and money in my life, it would be more. (laughs) Well, in that case, then, I think you're probably a far more serious affectionado of Big Finish's output than I am. Um, But uh, we're here today to discuss some special releases. And and Big Finish occasionally come up with mini-series, they come up with special offers, and they, they package them up and market them in various different ways. And earlier on, well, I was just about to say this year, but of course, I really mean last year, they released a whole bunch of budget releases, really. I think that's the only way of really describing them. Um, certainly no difference in terms of production, but they were deliberately... Well, it must be underpriced, and I wouldn't be surprised if Big Finish had taken a bit of a hit um, in, in terms of selling these so so cheap. And, and that applies the other side of the pond as well. It's not just hugely discounted in the UK, is it? No, they've been fantastic prices. I think some of those prices were limited through the end of last year and have gone up a little bit, but they're still bargain prices. A couple mm. of the things we'll listen to, I, I downloaded for a dollar each, and now I think they're a whopping $4.99. So, <laughs> so these these are good deals. I know Big Finish had been experimenting with, with some of this marketing and trying lower price points to see if it increased download numbers. I'd love to know what the, the result was. Of course, that'll be a trade secret, I suppose. But I hope it worked. I sure have enjoyed the pricing. No, absolutely. And I reckon we'll find out whether or not it was a success um, if they repeat this kind of initiative yes. in about 12 months time. Um, but the package that we're discussing is Unit Dominion, which consists of four individual discs, Dark Eyes, which is the most recent set of Eighth Doctor stories, again, four discs in number, two Jago and Lightfoot stories, which last about an hour or so with uh, with Colin Baker, and a huge three-disc adaption of Love and War, which is going to be the first thing we're going to be talking about, and was originally a Paul Cornell new adventure novel released, I believe, in 1992. That's purely from memory, so it's probably wrong. Indeed, it was 1992, because Big Finish chose to release this adaptation now in honour of the 20th anniversary of Bernie Summerfield. Indeed, and that's probably a far easier way of calculating how long ago the book was written, to be honest with you, given Love and War saw Beneath Summerfield's introduction. Now, we're not going to be able to go through all of those releases in one podcast, or else it will be about three hours long, but we are going to focus on Love and War, and uh, we're very pleased to be able to bring you a brief interview with Bernard Holly, who features in that particular play. Bernard, of course, has got a very strong Doctor Who pedigree. He played Axon Man uh, back in the claws of Axos and has been used by Big Finish for his vocal talents of uh, of recent years. 
and we're also going to be discussing the two Jago, Lightfoot and Sixth Doctor stories. Let's start by talking about how Bernice Summerfield came into being, and of course that was in the Virgin New Adventure Reigns in the early 90s. Michelle, what's your um, memory of these books, and, and, and how much did you get involved in them? Well, although I was a Doctor Who fan back in the 80s, I have to confess that I kind of fell away from the fold during the wilderness years and, and actually when I took off for college. So it wasn't until the new series came and I got back into it that I even discovered there had been this whole range of books that continued the story of the Doctor from the time after survival and followed Ace and the Seventh Doctor on in their adventures, uh, namely the the Virgin New Adventures. And, of course, there, there were other ranges, too. So I have, in the past few years, had to go back and start picking up on those, which I've been thoroughly enjoying. I, I've read the first... Oh, I think I've read the first five in order, and then I got uh, seduced by the Doctor Who Book Club podcast and have been reading along with them. So all in all, I've probably picked up about ten so far in the Virgin New Adventures. Love and War, of course, introduces Bernice Summerfield, and and so is a particularly important book in the range. Absolutely, yeah. And um, that range continued, well, all the way through to April 1997. There were 61 new adventures, um, and the last one was published in April 1997. So it was a good five, six years that these books were coming out pretty much every month. They were a little bit less regular right at the beginning of the range. But um, Bernie Summerfield was the first new companion. She was quite an experiment, really, for uh, for Virgin because they decided they wanted to take Ace in, in a different direction and they found the transition from where Ace was at the end of the televised series to where they wanted to take her too difficult to try and just transition from one book to another so they decided to write Ace out for a little while and in Ace's place they created this slightly more adult if you like companion in the form of of Benice Summerfield in Love and War which was the ninth new adventure ever to be published. At the end of the TV run Doctor Who was being made for fans by fans. I mean, uh, that's been said on many, many times. It's almost almost a cliche, really. But at the same time, Doctor Who certainly had a very niche appeal. And it was in danger, I think, of limiting its appeal um, to the point whereby no one else was particularly interested in it. And I think that is pretty much what happened and Doctor Who disappeared from our television screens in in 1989. However, the the fan base, even though it was relatively small in number, if you're talking about it in terms of TV audience statistics, was very loyal to Doctor Who and was very, very upset when, of course, the stories came to an end. And that's where the new adventures really came into their own, because rather than moving Doctor Who back to a wide appeal in this range, it kind of went even further. And on the back of each of these books, it had a statement along the lines of stories too wide and too deep and, you know, too expansive to be told on a small screen. And what that really equated to was stories that were slightly more adult in nature. They didn't need to appease the very young audience that, you know, Doctor Who had always carried along, even even if that number or that market segment had been reducing. And as a result, certainly within the first 10 or 12 books, you got a very experimental Doctor Who and the seventh Doctor he really went on a journey and never really stopped frankly Um, but Love and War is pretty much set at the beginning of that arc and the seventh Doctor becomes 
very very manipulative he 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 almost is a periphery character he just sits in the background and directs the plot through manipulating other characters and it's it's that trait that eventually sees ace disappear but uh, but love and war michelle when did you first read love and war exactly a year ago oh wow yeah now the timing was was wonderful and i was so excited when i heard that big finish was going to do an audio adaptation of it so i did reread it again just recently uh, to compare the, the the novel with the audio <laughs> yeah and i i absolutely loved the new adventures and i remember reading love and war and again it must have been only a couple of months after it uh, it was published so much so i think paul connell actually signs my copy back in 92 <laughs> at the uh, at the fitzroy tavern and i was really caught up with this new doctor who and there was an, a terrific amount of enthusiasm within fandom for for the direction that virgin and peter darville evans was was taking the range I think it was because Doctor Who had never been written or designed with the fans in mind so much before. And yeah, there was a couple of missteps. I I really disliked um, Ben Aranovich's transit. That was taking Doctor Who into far too adult uh, a, a territory. And for me, it just didn't really work. But by the time Paul Cornell got his hands um, on a commission, that range was was just developing nicely. And I had adored Doctor Who in the early 90s despite the fact that there was nothing on telly and it was that period of time where I can say I really became a Doctor Who fan and when I heard that Big Finish were going to adapt Love and War it reawakened that kind of passion and the sense of community that was in Doctor Who fandom at the time particularly in London in, in, in my brain so I was really looking forward to, to hearing the Dark Doctor and the kind of stories that the new adventure were telling um, a la Big Finish Three days till the money runs out I'm not leaving you though not without finding out where you lead to Chisel Chisel If I have to not sleep for the next three nights, I'll get you open. Ah, Fine brush. Fine Fine brush. What? Who are you? I'm the doctor. I'm the professor. And I'm very busy, so if you don't mind, I... Yes. You need a sonic screwdriver. Sonic what? Hey, do you know a young woman called Ace? Yes, I travel with her. Through time? And space. In a police box that's bigger on the inside than the outside. Any more questions? Hmm. What's the best Isley Brothers song? This old heart of mine. Correct. Surprising question. Ah, well, surprise is my middle name. Bernice Surprise Summerfield. My poor mum wanted to hammer that point home, I think. Is there a reason you're here? Or do you just like creeping up on innocent archaeologists? I want to know what's behind that door. Well, that makes two of us. But it's going to take a while. Not with the sonic screwdriver. Ah, well, you know how to take all the fun out of archaeology, don't you? I've now listened to Love and War. It's about, what, two hours long? Is it slightly more than two hours long? Which I I, I, I didn't know what to make of it. Um, I, I think it's extremely well produced, but... Perhaps it's a little bit too true to the book in as much as it's very representative of the era in which it was written, meaning it was very, very inaccessible to someone who doesn't know about the history of Benny Summerfield and 
probably the new adventures. Do you think so? I haven't had the chance to, to talk to anyone who has listened to it but hadn't read the book ahead of time. So that's hard for me to judge. I thought it was a superb adaptation of the book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, it's just like when you make a movie out of a book. There's going to be some differences. You can't do everything in, in the production that you did in the in the novel. But I, as you say, it was very faithful. Um, I thought it worked really well. But yeah, I did. I do have those. There's a couple scenes where I wonder if folks would understand fully what was going on if they hadn't read the book. Well, it is difficult. There's a couple of scenes that are very ethereal. They're absolutely intrinsic to the story. So it's really important that Big Finish kept them in. But it was very much late 80s, early 90s. They called them psi powers and they referred to what basically is some kind of virtual reality um, that was very common in science fiction stories in the late 80s, early 90s. But, you know, it had a slight sci-fi upgrade from Paul Cornell. And the environment that he created was called pewter space, which in itself sounds like a very early 90s word, doesn't it? <laughs> you know. It does, but but it worked really well. I mean, the concept mm. of, of using some device to plug yourself into a, a computer system to access this virtual world is pretty standard nowadays, I would think, I'm in, in science fiction and in film and and I didn't think there was any challenge understanding that it does get a little more challenging in that as you say those are more ethereal sequences and in fact those are some of the things that were significantly cut in the audio drama compared to what you read in in the novel oh no absolutely And and I think that was out of necessity but I'm really glad that they haven't tried to remove everything and if I can speak purely from a fan point of view then I loved it as well it was probably one of the most satisfying um, Doctor Who stories that I, I've listened to. Um, I, it's really strange though, whenever you speak to anybody involved in that production or, or someone who isn't familiar with new adventures, the new adventures, the first thing they say is it's confusing. And, and certainly when I spoke to Bernard, who starred <laughs> in, in this adaption, he didn't have a clue what was going on, not at all. And I mean, he hadn't read the book and he hadn't done a great deal of research. And But uh, for me, from, from a point of view of a listener it doesn't detract in the slightest so it is a complex story it's not a traditional doctor who story in any sense and it, it's a mile apart from the doctor who that you'd have been watching on telly in the 60s or 70s or even the early 80s but uh, i think it's very faithful and I, I and i really enjoyed it. Uh, it it's a good story i loved this novel it's it's one of my favorite if not my favorite that i've read so far from the virgin new adventures it's a, it's a good story it's a complex story there are, there are some subplots going on there are but it, it's it's a compelling story and i i think you can listen to it start to finish and understand and i bet if bernard holly has a chance to listen to the finished product he'll have a better grasp of what's going on oh i think that's probably true of most people and i've i've begun to really appreciate big finish that much more on a second listen to pretty much any production and i still only managed to find the time to listen to love and war on one occasion but uh, i i think it is a complex story as you rightly say and i think it must be even more complex for the regular performers if you look at um sophie aldred for instance and what she had to do with the role of Ace, she had to, you know, regress pretty much to how Ace was portrayed in 1989, because this is the start of her growing up or maturing story. Um, she falls in love. Come on, where's this library? It's all old McDonald's farm and chickens around here. Not all. See that spire over there? Hang on, Professor. They've got horses. Horses in space. There are people in space, so why not horses? Teach you to ride. It's worth a few coins. Hey, you. 
Gonna stand there all day or are you gonna take up my offer? You know how to ride a horse? I, I, I... Well, either you do or you don't. Yes. Uh, no. All right, Ace. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm coming. Uh, library, right? Scared? What, me? No. Long time ago, I told myself that if I had enough, I'd always give money to people that needed it. That lot back there looked like they needed cash. And that guy with the horse, he... he... Anyway, the library? I'll meet you there, OK? Now, that's the one story element that never worked for me in Love and War, even reading it in the original novel, because she falls for the character of Jan very, very quickly. And in the audio, that isn't really addressed. It's a case of love at first sight, and it's not just an infatuation. It is a deep affection that lasts and is intrinsic to the arc that Ace um, starts in, in Love and War. So that, for me, wasn't 100% correct. I knew this would come up, and and, and, <laughs> and I see your point. I agree that that's probably the least skillfully written part of the novel and, and even harder to translate into audio. Boy, neither the novel nor the audio do you have a visual picture of this person that she is falling in love with, and so much of, no. I think, our emotions in that realm can be based on, on the charisma and attraction that you see. Um, so to try and get that across in a novel or get that across in an audio... And, and I, I struggle with that a little bit, although there's that other side of me that says she's a teenager in this, or, or at best, early, early 20s. And, uh, you know, think back to your teenage years. It was a whole lot easier, I think, to to kind of fall for someone at the drop of a hat. And, and I'm willing to forgive a little bit <sighs> of that contrivance, be, knowing, <laughs> remembering what it was like to be a teenage girl. I do think in the audio... I would have cast the love interest different. Jan is the name of the of the fellow that she agreed. that she falls Absolutely for. Agreed. If you're yeah. going to have a love at first sight, particularly with someone like Ace, who is independent and and self sufficient, um, it's going to have to be someone pretty special. And if it's an audio, it's going to be someone who has to have a really special audio voice. And I didn't find that in this. I, I felt you know the actor did a did a reasonable job, but it didn't have that love at first sight potential for me in the way the character was portrayed and it's interesting both that actor and one of the others in here that that was one of my lesser favorites both commented in the extras that that they were relatively new or completely new to audio and doing things on audio and I have found in the past in some big big other big finish stories that the performances I like the least sometimes come from people who haven't done audio before. I agree completely. I mean, despite not having been a teenage girl, um, I do remember that uh, emotions ran high uh, when I was a teenager. I, I don't think I was ever party to a relationship or gave credence to a relationship where one of my friends suddenly fell for someone so hard and fast as Ace falls for Jan in this story. And, and I do agree. I, I think Jan is probably miscast. The actor sounds quite old. Um, I, and I would say it's uh, it's quite a quite a gravelly voice, and I'm not entirely certain how old the actor is who plays him. But for me, it didn't have the sense of believability or, or, or credibility, and I think that hampered an already difficult story element to achieve on audio. I've dwelt quite a lot on that, and it, it, it certainly didn't detract from my enjoyment of the overall 
adaption. Uh, Sylvester McCoy um, effortlessly moves into a manipulative, dark, uh, Virgin New Adventures style Doctor. And I know he's done this before, as, as indeed has Sophie Aldridge with a couple of main range Big Finish plays. But uh, he, his Doctor is, is so flexible. And McCoy, he knows every persona the seventh doctor has and of course that depends on whereabout in his timeline he is and that's what gives me such a lot of gratification when listening to a seventh doctor story if he stars in a story that's set shortly after survival he adapts his performance i'm not convinced that peter davison or colin baker changes their performance so noticeably depending on where their stories are set in their timelines i absolutely lapped up the seventh doctor's performance because mccoy is is fantastic this fence marks the edge of the landing zone it's an electric barrier to keep herd animals out what about people if you knew that several tons of dead people were about to descend pretty rapidly overhead would you go wandering around sightseeing i don't think so i see Shall we go in, then? We've got six hours until the next drop. Will that do? Oh, yes. I'm only sightseeing. Under we go. After you. So, do you have a girlfriend? No. Boyfriend? No. Model railway set? Somewhere. The TARDIS is full of surprises. But you're not the sort of person that keeps a big table with tiny trees and signal boxes and things? No. Ah, then you must be interested in law and order. No. I like chaos, big explosions, rebellions, that sort of thing. Why do you ask? Because I want to know why you go around in a police box. You know what one is? It's from my favourite era. I could have changed it ages ago, but I like the shape and the motto. Call here for help. That's what I do. I let little children sleep safely at night because I've searched through all the shadows and chased the baddies away. I'm what monsters have nightmares about. Wow. But everybody's a monster sometimes. We all do things we regret. And sometimes we have to lose things very precious to us. And I really hope Big Finish go go ahead and adapt some other Virgin New Adventures. I'd like to see the second story, for instance, that Bernice features in, because, of course, this is where she joins the Doctor for her, well, as it turns out, very long stay in the TARDIS. I would agree with you that Sylvester McCoy is really wonderful in this. It's one of my favourite performances by him. The Doctor in the novel and in the audio is in a very difficult position. Everybody talks about the manipulative Doctor and, oh, he sets things up to work this way. But he is also trapped in this plot. He sees what has to happen. He sees how events have to progress. Uh, and he knows the fallout and the consequences that are going to come from that and that they're going to be extremely painful. And that, you know, it's not just him setting things up in advance and knowing things in advance. It's him doing what he has to do, knowing that he and others mm-hmm. are going to be deeply hurt in the process. And that's a, boy, what a great character arc to play for Sylvester McCoy and he, he does it wonderfully in this oh, you get absolutely. those overtones um, and then there's even another layer I won't go into because I can't spoil the plot but um, yes you can this is a review show you can say what you like <laughs> no no I won't I won't because I think a lot of people won't have listened to this you know it's a special release it's a little bit obscure and I guess part of my mission on this on this episode is to encourage people to give it a try because honestly it's one of my all-time favorite things I've heard from Big Finish wow I, I do think it's interesting to listen purely for McCoy's performance because, as you rightly say, this kind of story, you know, it's a little bit about predestination. 
the doctor knows what's going to happen, he knows what must happen, and he knows it's going to be painful. And it's rare enough that Doctor Who has dealt with emotions, and certainly not love in the past, as overtly as this story does. And yet McCoy handles it with ease. You don't think that the Seventh Doctor is out of place talking about these kind of emotions or Ace falling in love and her having to leave the Seventh Doctor for a short time. That's that's simply not difficult to accept. And it could have been. It really could have been had McCoy not known how to play it. And I'm not sure whether he does it completely effortlessly or whether or not it is something that he does give a great deal of thought to. But either way, his performance is is probably the highlight of this story for me. For me, Sylvester McCoy can run hot and cold. Occasionally, I'll listen to him in a Big Finish audio and I'll think, oh, he's just reading the script and I can hear an actor reading the script. And it feels like there wasn't a lot of preparation. Other times, it's brilliant. And and this is one of those times. Well, maybe. And I think Leeson says the same thing, to be honest with you, about a couple of Seventh Doctors. And I've never, ever got that impression. I always feel that he's just nailed it. Uh, just correctly but um, you know I'll have to have to keep on listening um, I've, I've never been disappointed by a, a McCoy performance so far by a McCoy story yes on several occasions but certainly nothing I can attribute to the performance or the way Sylvester reads the lines off the page but uh, I think that's probably enough about love and war in terms of uh, what we thought of it I think you can you can tell it's pretty much a, a resounding thumbs up and a recommendation from the camper van My name is Phaedrus, Doctor. I work for the Church of Vacuum. I am sorry to see you in such pain. You mentioned that you had the chance to to talk to Bernard Holly in person, mm. and, and let, let's take a listen to that. Let me throw it over to you, James. Wonderful. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, yes, I'm joined by, I'm not quite sure what to call you, let's say the Reverend of the Church of Vacuum Cleaner or something mm. uh, within... Love and War. Actually, it's it's Phaedrus. It's Bernard Holly. Welcome back to the Doctor Who podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing to talk about uh, Love and War a mm-hmm. little bit with us. I'm interested to know, I mean, because Love and War is such a, an interesting and a different Doctor Who story, what were your first impressions when you read the script? Confused is probably the word that I would have used. Um, in fact, still do. I don't entirely understand what's going on. I know Benny Summerfield's character because I did one of her programs some time ago it was all the other interconnecting bits that um, I found a little bit hard to follow I think I ought to have I I should have read the book I didn't read the book and I should have read the book before I went in I didn't I think I don't think I even knew it was a book when they booked me for it it is conceivable that it may have confused you even more (laughs) and uh, listening to the um the special features at the end of the play where you hear from lisa bauman and a few of the other actors they hadn't read the book either uh, including sophie and sylvester so so i'm not alone in my ignorance (laughs) no not not at all not at all given that doctor who at the time love and war was written was was it had a very different audience to the audience that watches television today. I mean, how do you how do you feel something like this works? Does it just work on a completely different level? It's always something. Anything to do with Doctor Who now gets a much bigger audience than it would have done twenty years or thirty years ago, wouldn't it? Because mm. uh, it's just it's just developed, and I think that it it if you know a bit more about it, it or if I'd known a bit more about it, it would have worked on a 
on a, on a different level to a lot of the other Doctor Who stories, but it still would have worked, and it, it still does. It's mm. going to be this is going to be sold to lots of people, isn't it? And, uh, and uh, people have talked to me about it last weekend when I was at uh, a Doctor Who convention. Mm. You know, they were coming up to me and saying, "Can you sign?" They had the they ha already had the the discs, and I was signing the the covers. And so, uh, I just think anything really. It sounds patronising to say anything with the words Doctor Who on it will sell, but it's almost like that. People, it's got a big fan base, they're all very interested in it, and even if the stories are not quite, one particular story is not quite as hot as another one, they'll still buy it and love it. No, I agree, and I think that's one of the strengths of Doctor Who in whatever format it's in, it's its versatility, and I think there is room in the range for it to have a a very sci-fi, complicated story like this, and there's room for a straightforward story. Yeah. So when you went into the studio to record then, did you tell anybody what you thought of the play? Did you say, can somebody tell me what's going on? <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, when you go into the studio nowadays, because of time constraints and the fact that they want to uh, make sure they don't pay anybody too much, <laughs> they'll only pay you for what you do. So, so in that case, because Phaedrus just appears here and there throughout the story, I just went in for one afternoon, and it was recorded out of order. So, uh, <laughs> so he didn't really do anything to make it clearer. <laughs> not really. I mean, I had, of course, read the script, but mm. even re reading the script first time at home alone, you think, what, is, what the hell is going on here? Um, but so when we recorded it, it was recorded out of order, and I just um, just went for it, really. Just try to give it, try to make him sound menacing and as well, he's a killer, sort of. Uh, I know he kills in what he thinks is is a, a good way, <laughs> but um, but it, it, I just did it, you know. I just did mm. it, and, and nobody really talked to me about it, how I should do it. We just did it. Also about audio work, is it, uh, in my early years as an actor, I did a lot of radio, not so much nowadays, but I did then, and uh, you, you never really got any major notes from the producers and directors to do this or do that or do the other. They expected you to come in ready, and. I mean, maybe some, some directors do it with big finished productions, I don't know. I've no idea, I haven't done enough. Well, I, I think when you listen to them talk about how they direct sometimes, they, they always let actors bring something to the role, and I think that's good. And I think if you'd got it completely wrong or inappropriate, said, I think they would have said, that's yeah. great, Bernard, let's yeah. do it a slightly different way. Yeah. But, um, I mean, Gary presumably was directing yes. you at the time. Gary Russell, yeah. He said once, at one point he said... Uh, after I recorded a scene, he said, OK, Bernard, fine, slow down a bit. I said, right, I'll do it again. He said, no, no, don't do it again. Just in future, slow down a bit. So there's, I think that was the only note I got from Gary, I'm not sure. So next time you play Phaedrus, you'll do I'll it slower. I've got to be very, very, very slow. <laughs> now that's quite menacing. Yeah. So um, let, let's go back a little bit. I mean, how, how, how were you cast? How did Gary decide to, to cast you as Phaedrus? You know, I've got absolutely no idea. <laughs> I just got a phone call from my voiceover agent, who handled all the stuff that I do, all the all the voice stuff that I do. Uh, said uh, there's a, a big finished job come up, uh, came coming up for you. Uh, it's an afternoon. It's not very much money, <laughs> but of course, you know, I love working there. They're really, really nice people. And Gary, I know, of course, from um, when he was a boy actor. I did the Phoenix, um, uh, television Phoenix in the Carpet many years ago, 1976 it was, and I think Gary was a 13-year-old schoolboy, <laughs> and he played the son of the family, and um, in fact, uh, he, was, he, he was absolutely fascinated by actors in the theatre, even then, mm. and uh, he used to come, I often worked in the theatre around London, like in Windsor and... Uh, you know, Guildford and all those all those sort of round London repertory theatres 
and he'd always turn up with his mum. His mum, mum would always bring him along when he was about 13, 14. Oh, well. He's a sort of follower. <laughs> well, this is the kind of thing that happens, it's I think. Old it's version um, of Twitter. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. But I, I think because Gary was clearly such a fan of Doctor Who when yeah. he was young, he would have known precisely who Axos was. He'd have yeah. remembered his big, booming voice. Yeah. And indeed, he'd have heard you in, uh, in other plays that you've done yeah, for course. Big Finish, yeah. too. And uh, clearly... It must have been a kind of dream for him to cast Axos. So, there, so, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. I, I don't know. <laughs> don't forget, at the time uh, Axos went out, he would have been, uh, what did I say, in 1976 he was 13, so it was seven years er- uh, five years earlier, and he mm. would have been eight or nine. I suppose he could have heard it. And there weren't the repeats, all the DVDs. Were there so that he couldn't have bought, gone out and bought? No, not then. But he was very much. Uh, he was very prominent within fandom, e- even back when oh, was Love and War the book came out. Certainly, oh, right. and, and and indeed he's written for the same range as Paul Cornell. Oh, yeah, um, right. So yeah, certainly I think he's grown up with Doctor Who, and uh, he's probably one of those guys who can reel off well, yeah, all of, all of the actors in every episode. There's a guy called Toby Haydock who seems to know more than anybody about Doctor Who. Yeah, it's Who. quite worrying, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. I said, how do you? Lo-? I met him yesterday. Actually, it's, how do you? How do you learn all this? He said, I don't learn it. It just goes in and stays there. Mm. Very clever, isn't it? Anyway, go, going back to Love and War, yeah. um, you, you, your approach to Phaedrus. Was there a character brief? Did you have a few lines about who Phaedrus was? No, not on the script. Uh, but it was pretty obvious. As far as I can remember, Gary and I had a little chat before I started, but it mm. wasn't like giving... He's just saying, he's, I don't think... He's not a very pleasant person. Let's see what comes over. And, and I just did it, as I've said before. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But then I remember that was really the same with... The other two that I've done there, the Claws of Axos, I'm like, that I knew how to do because I'd <laughs> I should done hope it before. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, the same with the with the Benny Summerfield one. And same with that. I played a, a three or four different parts, and I just mm. again, you know, when you're an actor, when you've got a lot of experience, when you know how to move up to a mic and speak like that and move away again, you know, where you learn those things through experience. Mm. And so I just I just fell into it really, and I always have done with everything I've done. Mm. And, but the thing about the Claws of Axos. Because I, although I'd done it before, uh, the visual one, um, it, it still came back instantly. I don't know why, it just did. And I just think that it, it, that's experience because I've been an actor for 50 years next year. Wow. <laughs> and it's the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, so I'm hoping that somebody can tie both of those two things together. Well, you never know. It would be nice. Do you know what? I have a feeling that um, it, it, the number of people who have said something similar, there is going to be the largest cast <laughs> yeah, ever uh, in, in the 50th really, anniversary special. I don't really expect <laughs> it. I don't really expect it. It just would be nice. Well, it does have to be a celebration, and yeah. it is interesting, and it's certainly something that fans are talking about, is how yeah. they're going to celebrate 50 years. Yeah, and yeah. I am absolutely certain Bernard, that there'll be a lot of respect paid to Doctor Who of the past, yeah, uh, and really therefore imagine. you never know. You never know. You never, you know, never, know, indeed. Know. So, you never know. Anyway, when you were recording your um, your lines in that afternoon, were you recording alone, or were you with Sylvester no, or Sophie? No, well, what, what? Yes, they were both there. Hmm. But what happens at most studios? Everybody has their own individual booth. You probably know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you just do it there. But they, they, they were there. I wasn't doing the lines completely. So you, you, you do have somebody to bounce off, except you can't look them in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, uh, did you get a chance to speak to them about the script in there? Oh, yeah, 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 a little, a little bit here and there. But n- nobody talks about the script, really. You just sit really? out there nattering about showbiz. <laughs> That's fascinating. Are you busy, darling? Are you busy? <laughs> it goes on. <laughs> it's interesting, though, I suppose, because clearly from a fan's point of view, you don't know how these things work. And maybe I, maybe I just... Vi- Imagines the cast members talking about this strange story because it is a strange story. It is a strange story. Yeah. I don't remember anybody talking about it. Mm. I really don't. But don't forget, by the time I got there, they'd recorded 
uh, three quarters of it, I was the last quarter course, to be recorded. Yeah. So anything that they wanted to say, they probably said the day before or <laughs> as soon as they got there. Did you and Sylvester talk about Eureka? Oh, yeah. well, I, I've see, I see him quite regularly. He's a very good friend of a very close friend of mine, Clive Doig, who, oh, yes. yep, who was yep. a vision mixer on all the early mm. Doctor Whos. Um, and he's a close friend of, of uh, Sylvester's a close friend of his, and I'm, uh, we, I live around the corner from Clive, so if Silver, Sylvester comes over to see Clive, we, we always get together, have a drink at the pub over the road. And oh, fantastic. So I've known him, I've just known him for years. He's um, mm. just a lovely guy. Not as a fruitcake, but lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it must be nice to, um, to work together, though, when you've known someone for oh, a long, long yeah, time. And then, of course, you've worked with three other doctors anyway, yeah. and you've worked with Sylvester before, but not in a Doctor Who, and now that's another one you can... Tick off. off your list. I've still got Peter yeah. Davidson. I've got all the others to go yet. No, Peter yeah, Davidson, I met this weekend again at Dimensions in Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, so. good, good. Have, were people asking you about Love and War a lot at the uh, convention they, you've been to recently? Not a lot, but they came with the covers for mm, for mm. signing. Uh, they didn't. Nobody said to me, "I don't understand the story. Can you explain it to me?" <laughs> <laughs> I would have said, oh, "Would you go and speak to Sylvester over there?" <laughs> We'd have probably sent um, them back <laughs> to you. Back to me, yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Well, but it's been fantastic talking to you about love and war and I'm absolutely certain that this won't be your last association with Doctor Who there's, there's plenty of other new adventures featuring Bernice Summerfield uh, you oh, never well, know yeah. uh, you well, may well be back I'm available <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much Bernard my pleasure well thank you James it's just a, a joy to get to hear you talking with folks I'm still envious of you for being over there on that side of the pond where you can meet these people in person Bernard Holly's interviewed with us before hasn't he yes he has yeah that was some time ago now I think when he oh I think it was his first appearance for Big Finish in the Feast of Axos and I have to admit I, I didn't know a terrific amount about Bernard at that point um but following that interview and having a chance to interview him and then have a pint with him afterwards, I'd realised he'd acted alongside, I think it's four or five doctors now. So he's, um, he's in the running for, um, you know, for holding some kind of record there, I think. Well, and he always comes off as such a, a wonderful gentleman. So thank you so much for getting that interview for us. We have Jaguan Lightfoot with the Sixth Doctor, voyaging to Venus and then voyaging to the New World. So uh, you want to start out talking a little about the voyage to Venus? We don't even know where we are yet. Yes, where are we? It's a rum place, wherever it is. Some exotic climb? The jungles of Borneo, perhaps? Borneo? Borneo? Well, or India. I expect at any moment now. An elephant will emerge from the undergrowth, balancing a Maharaja upon its shoulders. I know India, and I can assure you that on none of my visits was the sky a vivid shade of lilac. Mm. Oh, my sainted aunt, you're right. Though I'd say it was more of a mauve. I suspect we've travelled to somewhere more distant than the East Indies. Is that right, Doctor? Indeed. You see that small white point just above the treetops? That's Earth. Earth? Mr. Jago, Professor Lightfoot, you are standing on the planet Venus. Good Lord, Venus. Oh, well, I was in the right direction. Oh, of all the ungrateful things. Here we are. Breathing the air of a world a million miles from the place of our birth. It's beyond all imagination. Professor, a quick word in your shell-like. What? A thought just occurred to me. You don't think we should... Lay a claim to the land, do you? What on Earth? <laughs> or rather, what on Venus? Do you mean? 
On behalf of Her Majesty and the British Empire, of course. Stick a Union Jack in the heathen soil and whatnot. Do you have such a flag about your person, Henry? Well, no, 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 I don't. Then I suggest we defer our colonial responsibilities for the time being. Right you are, Professor. Just a passing notion. Voyage to Venus, okay. Well, we've got 60 minutes here. Um, you've got two of the best-loved companions from the classic series who have probably transitioned to audio the best um, out of anyone, I would say, who's returned to Doctor Who under the Big Finish banner. And I think certainly their own series has got to be one of my favourite set of releases. I think they're up to Series 5 now. They're just about to release Series 5. There are four plays in each of those series, and I do not think there is a bad story present. I've I've enjoyed the lot. I also love Colin Baker. <laughs> I love what he's done with the Doctor under Big Finish. So as far as I'm concerned, putting the Sixth Doctor together with Jago and Lightfoot, um, when all three characters have such an emphasis on dialogue, uh, was an obvious thing to do. Uh, the only thing I would question is is why these were released before um, the two characters have met up once again with uh, with the fourth doctor but leaving that aside i went into this release with my hopes held very very high uh, jonathan morris is the writer and he's written countless times for big finish now and i i usually like the stuff that he puts out so after i listened to this for the very first time i was somewhat confused as to why i didn't really like it and I, I felt very, very let down and disappointed. Um, even more annoyed at myself because I couldn't quite pinpoint why I didn't like it. But uh, I, I think I may have analysed my um, um, my reaction a little now. But uh, before I go into that, Michelle, what were your first impressions of uh, Voyage to Venus? Well, I'm going to start actually by quizzing you. Ooh. What do the following four stories have in common? <laughs> don't, you, don't you love these kind of quiz questions? No. Here, here. <laughs> I know how much you love quizzes. <laughs> okay, Prison in Space. That's a second Doctor Lost story. Prison in Space? Prison in Space. Maybe you haven't listened to it. I've not heard that one at all, no. It's, it's, um, when you say Lost story, do you mean one that's... Um... Oh, this is a big finish. Big finish release. Oh, okay. Second, second, second Doctor Lost story. Right, I've not heard that one. All right, so that's not going to... Ha- See, you're already going <laughs> to have a hard time with this quiz question. Okay, we had this one I know you've heard. Mission to Magnus. Yes. Voyage to Venus, of course, is in this category. And Galaxy 4. Right, you all have a predisposition for extremely strong women. <laughs> that, you know, that's a part of it. Prison in Space is, is the same kind of thing. You have societies that are dominated by women. And in each and every case, it's a very, very negative portrayal uh, of the female-dominated society. You have women who are, are shrill, who are domineering, who <laughs> belittle men. And frankly, with the possible exception of Galaxy 4, all of those are really poor stories, in my opinion. Mm. And I don't think it's just because of the portrayal of these matriarchal societies as being terribly dysfunctional. They're just not particularly good stories, any of them. Prison in Space, by the way, is a, is a second Doctor lost story that had the Doctor and Jamie being sent off to this prison run by women guards and a society, again, dominated by women. And I got to thinking, can you think of any matriarchal society in Doctor Who that is portrayed in a positive light um no i i I can't and i'm not entirely certain that that there is one but at at the same time you know it i I, it depends how you look at it um i if, if you are going to highlight this particular story element as as really important and intrinsically important to the plot 
then I think you're right. I think Doctor Who is not served particularly well. But I don't think that's particularly important in Voyage to Venus. I, I think it is in the sense that what you end up with are caricatures rather than characters. And I think that was my big issue w- with this story. They they don't seem real. They seem like um, two-dimensional cartoon characters who, who aren't real people. Captain Felina. Yes, Your Highness. Take a squadron of guards to the palace laboratories. Have Chief Scientist Ursina executed for treason and have those two animals eradicated. What? As Your Highness commands. Oh, you can't. The Doctor and the Professor are wholly innocent. They know too much, as do you. Maybe I should have you eradicated too, Jago, ma'am. No, Your Majesty, I beg you. You beg me? Yes, most abjectly. Hmm. Then I shall grant you a chance to live. Oh, oh, thank you, thank you. You're too kind. For as long as you continue to amuse me, you shall be given food and water and a place of lodging. You can be my pet. Oh, thank you. You're most... Sorry, did you just say pet? Even the world itself didn't seem real believable. I mean, you have a Venus that's that's a jungle. I, I think it's probably true to say that the story is at fault here more than anything else, um, because there are some really, really good things about it to say as, as well. I do think the performances here are pretty strong, and I, even the female characters... You know who are the inhabitants in some form um, of, of of Venus have a reason to to act the way they do. Uh, they're very manipulative. Um, you know they're not particularly pleasant individuals, and they all have their own motives. I mean, there are a couple I think towards the end who have a um, a bit of a turnaround, and they realise, courtesy of the Doctor, that the way their society is heading is is is, is not correct. I'm going to focus on the performances of Christopher Benjamin and Trevor Baxter and Colin Baker. And I will say that I think they are brilliant. And I would say that without those performances, this story would would fail. I wouldn't go as far as to say it as it, it fails now. I would say that it just comes in as a fairly standard story. The, the story is fairly intricate. And I do think that Jonathan Morris did spend a lot of time trying to work out you know where the story should go uh, there, there's clearly a lot of influences here and uh, I, I think you're right first of all when you talk about Venus not being particularly Venusian certainly in the way that the audience would expect it to be because it is a forest world and for the majority of the play it could have been set anywhere um, there is actually a very strong reason plot story reason if you like as to why it is set on Venus but that's not made obvious until the very end I think a lot of the the lines that Jago gets here, I mean, they're, they're brilliant. You know, you you take you strip away the story, and you just listen to the way Benjamin performs them, and they are very very enjoyable. Yeah, I think you're right. The performances are are strong, as they almost always are in Big Finish, and and the two lead actors, well, and Colin Baker for that matter too. The mm. three lead actors are are. are, are fantastic as always and the sound design is always wonderful in in big finish too so this actually for me is probably one of my least favorite big finishes ever and it's not not necessarily because of the woman thing i i actually didn't realize that until i got to thinking about it after having listened to the io that when i started listing in my mind some of the other things i least liked that i've heard from big finish it was like oh my goodness they have this consistent plot element but <laughs> but no i i think for me mostly it's the caricature thing even even jago who, again, was performed wonderfully and does have a lot of uh, of funny lines. It was almost like, for me, a cartoon version of Jago. Uh, He's got this saying, he says, he goes, oh, corks. Yes. 
And he must have said that a gazillion times in this story to the point, again, where it becomes more of a caricature than a real character. Yeah, there certainly were too many corks, yes. (laughs) But yeah, I I referred a little bit earlier to a couple of influences, and I I wondered whether or not this rung any uh, bells with you. I mean, Venus at one point is is termed as Earth's twin planet, and I'm not sure whether or not that's got any uh, grounds in truth. If I know Johnny Morris and and, and big, big Finnish writers in general there will be some reason as to why that piece of dialogue is there. But it put me in mind a little bit of Mondas and the Cybermen, and uh, bearing in mind the Venusians um, modified their body to adapt to the hostile environment that uh, Venus would offer. They, they changed their lungs in this story, they put on green fur. And even if you look at the dialogue of the, of, of the Queen, um, she regularly says, eradicate them which is a very 80s Cybermen thing to say. So I'm not sure whether that was a deliberate allusion to the Cybermen. Perhaps humanity, you know, went in two directions. Half of them became Cybermen, the other half became um, Venusian, who who knows. Uh, but that, that, I thought, was quite a, quite a clear theme. I'm not sure I'd go as far as you would, but the whole idea of them having adapted themselves to this planet is another one of the elements that, that didn't work for me, because and, and hmm. I won't give it all away, but, well, the lungs, the lungs make sense. I'm not sure why green fur is necessary, but <laughs> I won't tell exactly what, but the way that the men were adapted hmm. makes no sense whatsoever I to me. I do agree. That did seem to be chucked in there, and I was thinking, oh, uh, okay, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of, of, um, of, of Total Recall, but uh, it wasn't actually visited once again, you know, there wasn't a reason for that. It was just a case of saying, well, okay, this this is a little bit of fun and horrific imagery that I'm going to throw in for no particular reason. Um, but that was just something else that I felt could have been borrowed from. I mean, th- th- there's also another scene where conveniently a, a collective hive mind has been left behind. And again, uh, so that we don't completely destroy the story i won't explain how that came about but it was convenient in as much as the doctor could have a very good and quick conversation with this entity and and understand precisely what has happened and once again uh, the plot wasn't dissimilar to that in the silurians um, there was some suspended animation um, there was uh, impending planetary disaster and so you know it's it's nothing particularly original um coexistence is a theme here as well and I, I just kind of felt well we've we've kind of seen this uh before and it's it's not original it was almost as if someone is being given the gems from doctor who in jago and lightfoot and the sixth doctor and didn't really plot it you know originally enough i mean as i said there is a story here there's quite an intricate story here but it's borrowed from so many other doctor who elements um and i and i did find that quite uh quite difficult i mean the, the the ending which i suppose you could say was a bit of a gag and you know the, the whole reason as to why this story took place on venus really you could see it coming a mile away but for me i still smiled and i still thought yeah that's 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 quite fun uh to to, to listen to but uh, i would say this one is worth a second listen um you know when, when your expectations are managed somewhat and it is true that every time i listen to a big finish a second time i always enjoy it more than I more than I did the first time, but I'll say if you really want a voyage to Venus, uh, let me go back to the uh, the spinoff novels range. There was there was a, a novel in the Missing Adventures range, I believe it was, where the first Doctor and Ian and Barbara and Susan, I think, were with him on that one. Go to Venus, much much more interesting story, 
much deeper story. Go to go to Venus with the first Doctor in the novels. Yeah, I mean, I I think the reason why this story is told in the tone that it is, it, it's supposed to be a slightly lighter um, story. It's meant to be quite comedic. It's meant to be quite funny, um, and I, I I think because of that, and it could also be because Jago and Lightfoot are, are out of their comfort zone. They're not the main protagonists in this story as they were in their own series. They've got to contend with the Sixth Doctor, you know, they're kind of playing in his pool this time, so their role has changed from, um, you know, leading men uh, to uh, to companions, and I think that that's quite a difficult transition to achieve when you're trying to create quite a comic story. I just don't think it worked particularly well, and uh, I, I, it's a shame, because I think sometimes all of these ideas fans have, let's have this monster, Daleks and Cybermen, for instance, and uh, of course we saw that in the culmination of, um, of season two on television. Was it as satisfying as everybody believed it would be once it actually happened? I think the general opinion is no, it wasn't. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, and I'm sure it's for that reason, Michelle. They they change tone significantly for the seconds of these stories that's written by Matthew Sweet and called Voyage to the New World. Speak. I'm an Englishman, true-born and all that. Look here, I must apologise for my outburst. I, I thought you were the horrible Algonquins come to scalp me. <laughs> you don't go over that sort of thing, I take it. <laughs> oh... Where are our planters? Ananias Dare, Winifred Powell, some hundred souls. I'm the faintest. They seem not to have left a note, unless you count that. What? Carved into that post there, one word, C-R-O. Croatoan. Yeah, that's a fellow. Means nothing to me. Oh, look, this is, this is dashed awkward, but I need your assistance. I came here with two fellow travellers. We have crossed a thousand leagues of ocean to reach these shores this place. When last I saw our colony, there were houses, barns, livestock. It was a pleasant habitation, and now all here is ranged for battle. Timbers torn down and built again for some great siege. What ails you? I thought something like ants crawling on me. Who art thou? Jago, sir. Henry Gordon Jago. And in this war, how many men did Gordon Jago slay? How many babes? None. None at all, I assure you. Consider this. The old world is quite deaf to shouts of murder here. Who marks a cry for mercy in Virginia? None but the trees and beasts. So, sir, tell us thy tale. In contrast to the one before, which is probably one of my least favorite Big Finish releases, this is going to go down again in my favorites. Uh, it was day and night for me. I, I really loved Voyage to the New World. Totally different tone, much more interior, much more poignant, and, and, and the, the writing is almost poetic. In, in fact, it's set in, uh, I think, 1590, uh, most of it, and uh, so we're at a time when Shakespeare was, was doing his thing, and the language comes from that era. There are times when, when that really resonates. One cheese. I would hear from thee. So silent, and yet this is the very spot my father breathed his last. He did. And he is gone. But here is someone else whom I have loved. I see my daughter, old man. I see her amid this throng of English aliens. Mantia, speak to me. She says the words, and yet no sound comes out. She lifts her hand and I gaze through her skin. 
a ghost she is. A spirit gone beyond the world of things and men. Part of it is just the language of the piece. Part of it is the story of the piece. There's a very, very haunting... I was going to say a villain, but villain isn't the right word either. How about you? Were you as strongly affected? I'm afraid I'm the polar opposite of you. I, I'll be completely honest. I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I, I didn't understand it. And I have only listened to it on one occasion, but I felt the characters were diluted. I felt they were massively different uh, to what we'd just heard in, in Venus, which, of course, um, if you're coming from your perspective, Michelle, that's a good thing. Um, massively improved. <laughs> I, I think Jago and Lightfoot had never um, been used to tell this kind of story before, um, and they were separated for the vast majority of the story, and uh, I, I, I didn't like that, I have to say. I felt that the um, there, there, there was a lot of assumptions made on behalf of the writer here. Now, I, I went online purely because I knew I was going to have to uh, talk about this. Um, and apparently this lost colony is something that's extremely well known um, stateside. Um, maybe, is, is that correct? I don't know that I'd go so far as extremely well known, ah. but it, it is an episode of, of history, so folks who are interested in history will know about it. Well, Matthew Sweet compared it to the Mary Celeste and of course, I don't think you'll find many people in the UK, for instance, who aren't familiar with at least a basic concept of what happened on the Marie Celeste. Now, I, I, mm -hmm. so if I equate that and assume that's what happens in America, then I think perhaps you would have had a very different listening experience to to me. But uh, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Um, I'm never overly keen on ethereal stories, and again, I wasn't too certain what plane of existence things were were, were happening on. That was a little bit confusing to me and uh, the sixth doctor uh, was was just different it was just far too straight for me um henry gordon jago was was wasted as far as i was concerned and uh, i i really didn't care for this and i would have said that this is probably um one of my least favorite uh, stories that i've heard from big finish in in some time and certainly by far and away the worst jago and lightfoot story uh, that I've listened to. Again, all in in my opinion. Wow. Boy, I don't know that we've ever differed this much on anything. <laughs> <laughs> I really struggled to get to the end. I really struggled to get to the end. I listened to the first half on the way to work and I listened to the second half at that lunchtime and I, and I honestly thought uh, towards the end, I'm not going to understand the resolution here. I'm not going to understand what's, what's happened. Um, I, I had difficulty really being interested in it. And uh, I, I will take another listen. As I said, I, I, I do tend to have a very different experience the second time I listen to it. But again, I, I, I love Matthew Sweet stories. He's written for Jago and Lightfoot ever since the series came about. And his stories are the ones that I really like. I love his big finish main range story, A Year of the Pig, another Six Doctor story. Fantastic. But this one for me went so far above my head. You know, I, I just, just didn't get it. My listening experience w was very different and it might have some pertinence to our opinions. I listened to it last night and I, I was very focused on it. I, I wasn't doing anything else at the time and paying full attention to the story. So I bet you will like this one better on, on, on a second go round. But um, there were some complexities, you know, the issue of time and, and, and temporal grace actually comes in at the end, which I liked in the context here. I mean, I, I generally like anything that includes time travel as a, a central plot premise and you can call this one timey-wimey, to use that new phrase that everyone's using these days. Uh, there is an element of time travel to this that becomes apparent towards the end. Um, I still didn't understand quite what was going on. And, you know, I, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I think 
the more the writers of Big Finish see how Doctor Who is made these days and written these days, they have an opportunity to use some of those traits in writing stories for Doctors of the past. And I think, generally speaking, that is a very successful thing. And I I just don't think the timey-wimey nature of Doctor Who uh, that's told on screen by Stephen Moffat and other very gifted writers works as easily on audio. Jonathan Morris has, has done it successfully on many occasions and he really set the bar quite high, I think. And I just feel it's not as accessible which is a shame for me because, as I said, I didn't thoroughly enjoy the first Jago and Lightfoot story and I actually actively disliked New World. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are other things that I, I did like, um, despite the performances being fairly muted. And I think the nature and tone of this story demanded a more um, less manic and caricature performance from the, the three leads. It's still a good performance, it's just watered down, you know, their eccentricities and their um, their relationships, you know, the friendly relationship um, that Jacob and Lightfoot have isn't dwelt on as much. When you do have a story, and in this case I'm talking about the whole arc of Jago and Lightfoot that, that is rollicking along at this real exciting pace and, and they do have this comic element and, and wonderful stuff. When you take that pause, when you slow down and have a story that makes them kind of look within, I think it can be even more powerful. And, and for me, this one worked on that mm, level. Mm. I really liked seeing them kind of take a breath. You know, there's a very real possibility that Jago is dying in this and the grace with which he handles that situation while still having some of his comic elements. Uh, I was really touched by, by the performance. And, and there there are some sequences where Jago and Lightfoot are talking to each other and, and for a time they think that they're going to have to be separated. And I think, yeah, maybe underplayed, but I would say that in the most positive way, that there's a real poignancy to this that, that I think works. Mm. No, fine. And, and to be fair, I think the reviews I've seen online are generally favourable and people do agree with you. They, they like seeing these two characters in a very different kind of story to that which we're used to. And I guess there's no reason as to why Big Finish should just pigeonhole characters into certain kinds of story. For some reason... Taking Jago and Lightfoot out of their normal, comfy, fluffy world that makes me smile so much normally, which I think, you know, is Victorian London, just just didn't didn't quite do it for me on this occasion. But uh, as I said, that's not a criticism on the story. I think the story here is probably stronger uh, than Voyage to Venus, but I just didn't find it as interesting for me. Well, it, it is a, a departure from the norm for these folks, and you can't do that all the time. In fact, if you do it too frequently, then it waters down the, the effect. But uh, in this case, I, I think it was a, a really great effect. I'm so sorry you didn't oh. really care for either one of these Jago and Lightfoots. But... <laughs> well, of, of the two, I, I certainly enjoyed the first the most, uh, once I'd listened to it for a second time. And I, I mean, Love and War, I, I did really like, but it's not just the adaption I was listening to. It was it was so reminiscent of being a fan. All of those feelings came rushing back when I was listening to that story, and that certainly enhanced my enjoyment of that play. But I think that's entirely what it was intended to do. Um, but yeah, of the three stories we've talked about, I would recommend Love and War the most. And if you really want to, to listen to some Jago and Lightfoot, then you really can't go wrong, as far as I'm concerned, in, in, in listening to any of the first four series incoming data transmission accessing file source message begins 
Big Blue Box Update. Okay, I'm joined once again by Stephen Elsden, the officer in charge, let's say, of Big Blue Box Two, the convention that's going to be held at the Trinity Theatre in Tunbridge Wells on the 16th of March 2013. Hello, Stephen. Hi there, James. Good evening to you. Oh, I understand there's been lots of exciting news about Big Blue Box. What have you been up to? Yeah, since we last uh, we last met, there's been some very interesting developments. Um, we've managed to secure a whole panel at the event, which is around the Destiny of the Doctor series, which of course has just started with, uh, with the William Hartnell era story. We have a panel which is going to revolve around the third Doctor story, Vengeance of the Stones. So on that panel we will have Andrew Smith, who has written Vengeance of the Stones and of course is an original series writer in his own right. Um, he'll be along on the panel along with Richard Franklin, who is narrating that story. I don't think I'm breaking any uh, embargoes there in, uh, in announcing that. Um, and they'll be joined by John Ainsworth, who's been the director on the series, and Michael Stevens, who's the commissioning editor at Audio Go. So there's going to be a very, very interesting panel, I think, both to talk about that particular release, which is obviously in March, which is the same uh, month as the convention, but also to talk about the whole concept of the, uh, the series as well. It'll be three months into the 50th anniversary year then, and uh, people have been excited about this for a long, long time. So... It's, it's great that you're going to have one panel that's focused around a celebratory event. But, so, but what else have you got coming up for us? Well, I can also uh, announce now that we have Dan Starkey coming along. Who Strax. Are, uh, absolutely, Hi. yes. Uh, so a current, In costume? Uh, um, <laughs> I haven't asked him. I think that's doubtful. But uh, um, it's great to have somebody who's uh, involved in the series, you know, that's literally going live two weeks later. Because, yeah. of course, uh, it's now been announced that the first episode will be on the 30th, so two weeks after the convention. I don't know if Dan is in that uh, episode of Strax, but I don't he's in two or three episodes of the uh, the next eight but he's going to come along and he'll be sharing a panel with uh, Simon Fisher-Becker so we'll have two actors who can talk about uh, working alongside uh, Stephen Moffat and, and others which I think will make for a very interesting uh, hour. So we're going to have conversations that span the entire life of Doctor Who right from early Who with uh, the third Doctor all the way up to modern day Who. Yeah, yes indeed and I think we'll even go further back than that because we do have a panel uh, early in the day which is uh, Richard Bignall and Mark Ayers who have of course been very involved in the, in the restoration of the early, very early episodes mm. um, and I've asked them to talk about the, the, the secrets from the Doctor Who archive so in fact there'll be some discussion about some of the things that maybe have not come to light before. So. Oh fantastic, so we're going to have panels that discuss practically everything really aren't we? We've got New Who, Old Who, Restoration, DVDs, audios, music, writing, directing the whole the whole the whole shebang acting of course yes um we have had unfortunately a couple of people who've withdrawn from the event which i think is inevitable when we're doing a a, a charity event as as we are um so sarah sutton unfortunately has had to withdraw sarah has very very kindly said that she will offer a an auction item so we're gonna have a little auction on the on the day i don't know what that item is yet but Uh i'm sure that's going to be something that will be highly sought after uh and gary russell unfortunately has also had to uh, to pull out of our writers panel but you know we've still got a very very packed day uh, I was going through it today. We've got uh, we've got six panels on the day. We've got three other mini events, and we have Toby doing his. Uh my uh, stepson stole my sonic screwdriver and that's all for 50 pounds so i think we're going to provide a very very good value event and all the signings are free as well oh fantastic i have to say i'm very much looking forward to it the doctor who podcast will be there make sure you are too Stephen. thank you very much thank you very much james big blue box update all proceeds from big blue box 2 go to compaid a charity helping disabled people throughout southeast england further information is available at compaid.org.uk Mm-hmm. <laughs> dum, 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 dum. 
Hello, Michelle. James. I'm here for the recording. Hello. Hello. Look, I can see you in there, guys. Can't you see me? I'm up here. Let me in. Oh. They obviously can't hear me. They're too busy recording the episode. Uh, I might just have to do the recording from out here. Guys, in the annex, if that's okay. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'll just sit down in Ian's chair here. Crisp packets. Lolly wrappers. How does anyone record out here? My goodness. Anyway, James and Michelle have asked me to announce a competition in conjunction with this episode, and it's to win copies of two fantastic Big Finish adventures, Voyage to the New World by Matthew Sweet, starring, of course, Colin Baker, Professor Lightfoot, and Henry Gordon Jago, my word, and also a copy of uh, Paul Cornell's Love and War, which any fan worth his salt knows that it's an audio adaptation of his novel from the 90s in the new adventure range. Fantastic stuff. Well, we have copies of these releases to give away here on the Doctor Who podcast, and all you have to do is answer the simplest of questions. It couldn't be easier. Even my mother would know the answer to this question. Well, maybe not. Well, she might. You know, she's watched a little bit of Doctor Who. Anyway, question to win a copy of Love and War and Voyage to the New World is Paul Cornell has had another New Adventures novel adapted, but this time for the new television series. What was that novel called? Now, simple, simple question. All you have to do is tell us what novel did Paul Cornell have adapted for the new television series. Bit of a hint, it's one of my favourite stories from the new era. Bit of a giveaway, that. So, yeah, so get your answers into feedback at thedoctorypodcast.com to be in the running to win a copy of both of these fantastic audio adventures from Big Finish. Well, I'm off. I'll see you later. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Bye, guys. I'll, I'll catch up with you later. Bye. 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 I, I think on that note, we've probably reached the end of this special edition of the Doctor Who podcast. Um, we will be talking about the other special releases, in particular Unit Dominion. I think that's coming up, isn't it, Michelle? You're going to be discussing that with Ian. And Ian has certainly made a play for reviewing Dark Eyes as well, but I also happen to know Leeson is very, very keen to talk about that one as well. But we will be bringing you reviews of those releases on the DWP at some point in the next couple of months. This has been uh, a real extraordinary special releases set from Big Finish, one that, that folks really ought to dip into, and we look forward to hearing the further reports. Absolutely. Uh, Michelle, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, as always, about some Big Finish, and I hope it's not too long before we get a chance to do it again. We'll uh, we'll just kick Ian out. He's still knocking at the door, you know, trying to get him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess we should let him in. Okay, talk to you later. Cheers, Michelle. Bye for now. That was the Doctor Who podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.
So in all honesty, I didn't need to try and exercise my brain there. I should have just worked out the 20th anniversary. <laughs> really. It's, it's all the maths, John. Uh, well, John, yes. who are you? <laughs> Jan. It's, it's Jan's old. a character in Love and War, Michelle. <laughs> no, no, that was John, as in my husband, John. <laughs> John. Okay, Angela, let's, uh, let's carry on. <laughs>